Welcome to Woke and Wired, a new conversation about expanded consciousness and entrepreneurship. My desire to start an internet company wasn't really a desire to start an internet company. It was a desire to be completely free. And I saw the internet as the ultimate tool for freedom. Find the things that you so passionately believe in that that spark that fire inside you when you speak about them, and it will make all the difference. Welcome back to the Welcome Wired podcast. I'm your host, Ksenia, and I am especially excited about this week's episode because I have Leon the Alchemist on. Leon just launched his own podcast about biohacking called BioAlchemy. And I found him through his girlfriend, Sorel Amor. And his profile on Instagram caught my attention because he describes himself as a biohacker, engineer, master herbalist, entrepreneur, and semi-pro Ryan Gosling lookalike. And on top of that, his posts were talking about taking a social media detox. I just knew I had to have him on. And with all of that, I had no idea that he came from a digital marketing background, and that when he was 23, he started a social media company that generated $1 million of revenue in just the first nine months. He has an absolutely fascinating story, and he has so much wisdom to share from the world of biohacking. Yes, we talk about evening routines and how to reduce damage from screens But we also talk about what success really means and how in this digital age, the internet can be our access to freedom and how not to get caught up in chasing money and projects and really stay focused and stay with the ebb and flow of wherever life is guiding you. I'm not going to give away too much because Leon shares it all in his specific story, but other things we talk about are also how to stand out in the current social media landscape. And he also shares why he thinks from his perspective, having so much experience creating viral campaigns and digital marketing campaigns for some of the biggest brands in the world, he shares his perspective on why Sorel Amor is as successful as she is one of the top YouTube creators in the world right now. We talk about working smarter, not harder, and why grinding and hustling is not the answer. We talk about the 80-20 approach to healthy routines and not being harder yourself. And we wrap it all up with a nice conversation about the importance of self-love and how it really takes daily work. This episode is extremely motivational. I am super inspired by this conversation. If you are as moved by it as I am, or even just a little bit, please take a screenshot either of you listening to the podcast or maybe take a video and show me what's in front of you as you're listening to the podcast and tag at Woke and Wired as well as at Leon the Alchemist. Any show notes and all the resources mentioned in this talk are on wokeandwired.com. Please find them there as well as information on my conscious social media course, which very much ties into the conversation that we had here. Enjoy this episode. Please remember to subscribe and rate and review and check out previous episodes because there's 
more magic on similar topics that has been shared by previous guests as well as my solo episodes. All right, guys, I am very excited to welcome Leon all the way from Sydney on Welcome Wired podcast. Leon, it's 9 a.m. there, right? Yeah, it is. It's 9 a.m. So what is a bioalchemist up to at 9 a.m.? Interviewing people for my upcoming podcast, I just had an interview with a guy called Bob Troyer, uh, as he's known as Quantified Bob, and the guy's uh, probably one of the most famous biohackers in the world. He's very well known for tracking just about every possible biomarker or strange thing about his body that uh, you could possibly track. You know, there are a lot of people that take care of their health, but the thing that's crazy about Bob is he really goes over and above to track every single tiny piece of quantifiable data, whether that's, uh, you know, blood sugar, his heart rate variability, the way that he's sleeping. You know, if it's possible to track it in your body, he does it. Very interesting guy. But yeah, just going back to it, I, um, yeah, I'm about to launch a podcast, which is a new part of a, a life direction and a career for me. I'm not sure if it will be out by the time that this episode goes live, but I'm hoping for the first five episodes to be published next week. So oh, amazing. Fingers, fingers crossed all the editing getting out of the way. Yeah, it should go quite well, I think. What was the coolest thing that you learned from Quantified Bob? Not really the coolest thing, but just something that we very much see eye to eye on. So I've been probably since I was a kid. I call myself someone who's been very interested in health and that that came from my mother who was she never ever really gave us antibiotics or anything you know if we got sick it was never take this pill it was you know have this drink this weird aloe vera and lemongrass tea thing that we used to always cringe our noses at but it gave me a very keen interest in natural health and you know for the last I'm also an engineer by trade for the last 10 years I would say that I've been a biohacker even before before I knew the name or the term for it, which is just really being able to get the the optimal out of my body and mind. And one thing that people come to me all the time and say, you know, what are, what are the things that I can do to, to feel better? And it's it's funny to hear that people always expect me to say, you know, take this magic pill or here's this crazy technological device that'll help you think clearly. But my answer usually is, is get your sleep in order first. Being able to sleep properly, and there are a lot of people who think they're sleeping properly, but I guarantee they're not. Sleeping properly is the thing that's changed the way that I feel on a day-to-day basis more than anything. And going back to your question, it's one of the things that Bob suggests as well is that sleep is one of the most important things that we can do as human beings to feel better on a daily basis. And, uh, and yeah, so we definitely see eye to eye on that. How do you know that you're not sleeping properly? How would someone even identify that? So it's, it's all a matter of tracking your sleep. So there are a lot of things that the average person can do that they probably don't know about to, to track their sleeping patterns. Now, we as human beings, there are a lot of things that regulate the way that we sleep. For example, the levels of melatonin in our body, which is our sleep hormone, the way that our melatonin is uh, being released into our body and when it's being released, you know, the kinds of things that are coming into our experience while we're asleep, for example, light pollution, which can ruin our circadian rhythm, noise pollution, not sleeping in the right positions, so on and so forth. How to find out if you're not sleeping well, it's just a matter of tracking. So there are things that you can do. For example, there are products like the Aura Ring, which is spelled O-U-R-A, which is a self-quantification tool that will track your sleeping patterns. Now, some people say that we're supposed to sleep in a five, five and a half, 90-minute sleep cycles a night, which on average is correct. But it also doesn't a lot of people think that, well, you know, I just, as long as I'm getting eight hours, I'm getting the right amount of sleep. But what people don't know is, for the most part, is that they don't know how often or how long when they're asleep that they're staying in phase three or phase four sleep or REM sleep, which is where your body goes through its restorative processes. Some people may be sleeping very lightly and going only into the first two phases of sleep. So for anyone out there, and I won't go into 
too much of a long-winded thing about about this, but um, start tracking the way you sleep. The Aura Ring, O-U-R-A, is probably one of the best tools to do this. You can, there are certain tools like uh, even an Apple Watch will estimate your sleep cycles. It's not the best tool. They even admit that it's not really telling you how long that you're staying in certain phases of sleep, but it is guessing. But just doing basic things like making sure you're not staring at a computer screen or a mobile phone about two to three hours before you sleep, because all that's doing is pumping blue light into your eyes, which your body thinks is the same as the sun. So what that's doing is it's keeping your cortisol, which is your stress and awake or alertness hormone up, and it's not allowing your body to release melatonin. So some quick fixes that I can say to people is make sure your room is as dark or as black as it possibly can. If you can't see your hand in front of your face, when you've got the light off, that's probably a good thing. Try to stay off screens whatsoever two to three hours before you go to sleep. Try and remove as much noise pollution as you possibly can, whether that's earplugs or something similar. The other thing is if you find it really hard to sleep, I always recommend melatonin supplements, taking between one to three milligrams of melatonin about around half mm. an hour before sleep. And the last thing that a lot of people don't realize is when we're asleep, especially if your room is completely closed up, as you breathe in and take in oxygen, you'll exhale a lot of carbon dioxide. And if there's not a lot of ventilation in your room, your bedroom will actually become more uh, less oxygenated and have higher levels of carbon dioxide. And when that happens, your brain will is less likely to go into the deeper phases of sleep. So there are actually some plants that will release oxygen at night that you can fit into your bedroom, but just making sure your your bedroom is, oh. is ventilated as possible will help you sleep. But yeah, that's as, about as short as I can make that tip on how to sleep better. So in terms of ventilation, does cracking a window open or an air purifier count as such? Yeah, definitely. As long as it's helping to inject more oxygen into the space that you're sleeping, then yeah, definitely good things. The the only, I would say cracking a window is a good thing, but it will also depend on where you live. I mean, if you live in a quite a quiet area, then yeah, it should be fine. Like back at home in Iceland, our place near Selfoss, it's in the middle of basically nowhere, so we can open all the windows. There'll never be any noise pollution, but for people that are living in cities, that's obviously may not be a great solution. So yeah, it depends. I mean, if there is a lot of noise coming in, you can obviously mitigate that with some earplugs or something, but even just cracking your bedroom door, if there's, you know, if you live alone and you can make sure the rest of the house is dark, they're all good things. Right. What about those, you know, true dark glasses? There's Everyone's talking about them right now. Do you think, I mean, first of all, I totally agree with you. No phone in bed. That's my policy. I always talk about this on my blog, Breakfast Criminals, all about those morning and evening rituals and really giving ourselves that space to be with ourselves before we expose ourselves to emails and texts and Instagram notifications. So from a perspective, not even just biohacking, but mental and emotional health, I think not having your phone near bedtime is fantastic. But in terms of the specifics, if something happens and I need to stay up late, I'm working late, do you think that wearing those protective glasses does help reduce some of the harm? It definitely, it does. So True Dark glasses, all they're doing, and there are, there are a few other brands like True Dark that do basically the same thing. Ra Optics, RA Optics is another company that does it. And basically all they're doing is they're trying to eliminate as much of the blue light frequencies that are coming into your eyes. So as I just mentioned, when uh, the sun emits blue light and when, you know, you can't escape evolution and biology and we've evolved to live in harmony with the sun. So when the sun comes up in the morning and 
it enters our eyes, the melanopsin receptors in our eyes start to go, okay, there's blue light. It's obviously the morning. And what that does is it gives our brain a spike of cortisol, which is our stress hormone or our alertness hormone. Now, a lot of people say we need to eliminate cortisol from our life as much as possible. And I do agree with that to an extent because the more stressed you are, the more cortisol in your body, the less likely you are to live a healthy life. And that's something we know scientifically, but we need certain levels of cortisol to keep our circadian rhythms in check. Now, the problem is, is that we have such a habit of being so connected with our devices that most people... Well, not most people, that's an overgeneralization, but a lot of people are staring into a computer screen or a mobile phone up until the minute they go to bed. And a mobile phone or a computer screen by default emits blue light. Now, when that blue light enters your eyeballs, what our brain says is, is like, well, there's still blue light being pumped into my, into my eyeballs that these receptors in our eyes and also in our skin are picking up. So I must need to be alert and awake. So what that does is it stops your body from producing uh, melatonin, which is our body's natural relaxant hormone and our sleep hormone. So what's happening to sleep properly, basically you need a r the right amount of melatonin. And if you don't have the right amount of melatonin being released in your brain, you're not going to sleep properly. It's as simple as that. So to people that really need to be on their screen, whether it's a computer or a mobile device until they go to sleep, there are a few things that I recommend to mitigate the lack of melatonin in your brain as much as possible and to, to keep your body on as much of a natural circadian rhythm as possible. Now, blue light blocking glasses like True Dark or Ra Optics are a great option. The other option is that there are programs like Flux, which is fl.ux, I believe, or f.lux if you go, yeah, it's f.lux if you type it in your browser which is advice that will turn your computer screen red after a certain hour. So it knows the time zone that you're on. And as the sun starts to go down, your computer screen will gradually become less blue and more red. Now, I have basically my computer screen set on flux. So my computer screen is red most of the time, like basically all of the time. It doesn't matter what time of the day, just so I'm, I'm not having as much unnatural blue light pumped into my eyes as possible. But yeah, for people that are out there listening, they are a great option if you have to stay on devices as much as possible and you still want to try and sleep as normally as you can. That's super helpful. So if you're not on your screen two or three hours before bedtime, can you walk me through your evening rituals? So it's not every day. I do the best I can. And, and one thing that I always recommend to people when they're trying to get a hold of their biology or take better care of themselves or are interested in biohacking is don't try to go all in. Don't try and go 100% all in as hardcore as you can get. You will drive yourself insane. A really good rule of thumb, whether you're trying to observe a dietary restriction or, or whatever, you know, observe something that's going to take better care of yourself is start out with 80-20. So be on 80% 80 80 of the time and 20% off. And a great example of this is the way that I eat. So I try and eat quite well, almost completely organic food, paleo pescatarian most of the time, shitloads of heavily filtered water. But one day a week, I will give myself a day off and I'll go, if I want to go eat that fucking burger or have fried chicken or whatever, I will. Because it allows me to take things that I still enjoy out of life and not think, not drive myself crazy by thinking that I really want to eat that burger, but I know I'm the worst person in the world if I'm going to do that. And so I, I sort of relate this to my morning and my evening routines as well. So I try and do the best that I can and tick as many boxes as I can, but I'm never going to do them always all the time. So my evening routine, when I'm doing it the best that I possibly can, looks something like about two to three hours before bed, I will try and wind down off all my devices, whether that's computer screen, mobile devices, basically everything. I will try and limit as much as possible any artificial blue light. So, And that's, that's even lights in my home. 
preferring to replace those with candles. Candles emit red light as opposed to blue light, and it's a more natural form of light that won't keep our uh, cortisol levels up and our melatonin levels down. I'll tend to try and eat as early as I possibly can before bed. This is mainly because I I observe most of the time an intermittent fasting routine, but I also try and make sure that my body has done as much processing of food as it possibly can before I go to sleep so it can just focus quite heavily on the actual sleep when it comes to getting to sleep. In terms of supplementation, the one that I use most regularly is melatonin, which I've already mentioned, and that is especially on nights when I have had to use screens closer towards bed, I will take somewhere between one to three milligrams of melatonin, which will help my body naturally start producing melatonin, usually about half an hour before I need to go to sleep. Then there are certain things that I'll do to help my brain relax and get into sleep mode. As much as I possibly can, I try and only use the bed for sleep and sex, um, which is really, we train our brains and our bodies. If you're the kind of person that lays in bed and is on your phone all the time or works from bed, you're not really training your body to know that when I'm in this space, I should be preparing for sleep. So I find a, a big part of the reason that a lot of people can't sleep very well is because they're in their bed all the time. And when they try to roll over and finally get to sleep, they're like, well, my your body doesn't really equate that anything has changed. So what I'll try and do is I will sometimes for the last 15 or 20 minutes before I go to bed, I will read in bed, but it's I'm never usually in bed until I'm trying to train my body that it's time to sleep. However, if I want to read for a longer period of time or something, I'll just lay on the couch or lay on the floor. I don't know if it's a habit of me formally being a soldier, but I can sleep or find relaxation in just about anything. And I find I end up laying on the floor, a hard wooden floor a lot of the time, just because it's quite comfortable for me and it actually helps with some back issues that I've had in the past. But anything that you can do that's quite relaxing that will help you lead into sleep and slow your brain function down that will allow your body to start you know, naturally going, well, it's time for me to rest and relax and get into sleep mode. So things that you can do are sleeping, listen to a podcast, especially if it means you don't have to stare at a, a screen. You know, if you, if you only have to switch your screen on for a couple of seconds, navigate to a podcast or something or an audio book, that's fine. Try and do it as infrequently as you possibly can. Basically, anything that your brain doesn't really have to do to cognitively function heavily will help you get into a sleep pattern. Now, the some people may say, well, reading a book, I'm having to cognitively process things. That That's true to a certain extent. But I tend to find that as long as it's not something like a business book, don't try and do puzzles like crosswords or Sudoku or something like that before bed, because you're really, th- those things are great to do as brain training exercises in the morning, but not at night. I always find that it's like fantasy books do it for me. You know, something that your brain can go on a little bit of a journey or a story, you know, take one milligram to three milligrams of melatonin and then and then yeah, start reading a fiction book and and it's usually it usually knocks me knocks me quite heavily out. The other thing that I recommend to people, which is something that I discovered via Tim Ferriss, and through all the quantification that I've done on myself as well as all the research that I've done, I, I don't know why this works, but it just does. So let's say about half an hour before to bed, you make yourself a tea with nothing but hot water, a teaspoon of honey, preferably organic raw honey, and some apple cider vinegar, just a capful of apple cider vinegar, or two teaspoons full of apple cider vinegar, usually like a two to one ratio of vinegar to honey. And I don't know why, but that half an hour before bed knocks you the hell out. It's something that both myself and my partner Sorel have done 
numerous amount of times. And I don't know why it works, but it just works. There are theories that, so while we're asleep, our gut bacteria, our gut microbiome, which is basically our second brain, needs a certain amount of carbohydrate or sugar to help or glucose to help it go through its repair functions as effectively as possible. This is only a theory. So that could be one reason that it helps us to get into sleep mode easier and helps us to sleep better. I don't know. I recommend people test it. I can't say why it works, but I can say that it just it just works. That's so interesting. I usually tend to put apple cider vinegar in my morning elixir with turmeric and lemon. And I've seen Tim Ferriss use it, but I've never tried it. So you definitely have convinced me to give it a try. Yeah, definitely. And another big thing that I know it's it can be a little bit harder in this day and age while everyone's, you know, pumping down as many hits of addictive caffeine as they can, but try try and limit your coffee intake after about midday to two PM. So the half life of caffeine is depending on the person as well, is about six to eight hours. So if you have coffee at 2 p.m., there's, 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 a, there's a possibility that still 50% of the caffeine could be having an active effect on your body up until at least 10 p.m. So it's something a lot of people don't realize. They get the big rush for about an hour, hour and a half, depending on how they're taking in their caffeine. But there is still quite a lot of caffeine in your system, even eight, six to eight hours later after drinking it. So that's another thing that I recommend people eliminate after about midday to 2 p.m. at the latest if they want to start sleeping a little bit better and, and having a more functional evening routine. Right. And that includes matcha. It does. Any, basically anything with caffeine, anything, green tea, black tea, matcha, all tea has a certain level of caffeine depending on what you're drinking. You know, there's there's a lot of people think that, you know, even my parents are, are a great example. They, they drink five to seven cups of tea a day. They both claim that they don't really drink coffee and that they're not really addicted. But I mean, they're heavily addicted to tea because of the amount of caffeine that's in it and the amount that they drink on a daily basis. That sounds so Russian. In Russia, we drink tea about that much. Yeah, well, they're not, they're not Russian, but they are. Uh, my family are European. So I was the, the first huh. person in my entire family born in Australia. The rest, my father, Kim, he is from Romania. My mother is Austrian with Austrian and Czech ancestry. So they're all from basically that, that part of the world. Oh, wow. That's so cool. You know, something just came to mind that I thought you would really like. Have you heard of Vitality Swing? No, I haven't. Oh, my goodness. I'm about to change your life if Amazon delivers it to where you are. So Qi, Vitality, Vibration, Machine, there's many names for it. I learned about it from this incredible 80-year-old Shiatsu master in LA who looks like he's 40 and super energetic. And it's this machine where you plug your ankles into and you lay on the floor like you like it. And it shakes you side to side. And you can keep your arms either by your sides or you can put them together above your head. And for 20 minute, a 20 minute cycle, your body is basically being shaken and you can control at what speed. And then when it stops, your whole body is buzzing and vibrating because your chi has been spread throughout to places where it's been stagnated. It's kind of like, I guess you could compare it to acupuncture. My sensations are usually similar but it also has this incredibly relaxing effect. If I can't sleep, I just go in it. And by the end, I'm usually asleep. It, and it's like this complete body high, but at the same time, body relax. 
Okay, it's very interesting. It kind of sounds like so there are there's something called a power pad. I mean, there are there are a few companies that make make a similar product, but as opposed to laying on the ground, you basically stand on a pad and it vibrates your entire body. Now, that's from a biological point of view, it does some amazing things. One to help your lymphatic system move through your body, which can be great for a whole bunch of issues as well as just help giving your body a general immune system boost. But what it also does is it forces your muscles because it, it doesn't necessarily feel like anything much is happening apart from like your whole body is being vibrated like it's in a paint mixer. But what happens is you have so many tiny muscles in your body that you don't necessarily move or flex, but your body is trying to constantly adjust and react to this consistent vibration going through your body, which is actually helping to a certain extent stretch your entire muscular system. So it's considered by many to be like a 20 minute workout that you don't really have to do anything to apart from stand on a pad. That sounds about right. That's very similar, but I guess even more relaxing because you don't even have to stand. <laughs> so before we get into morning routines, I wanted to go back in time. You mentioned that you got into biohacking about 10 years ago. I'm curious what happened at the time and what were you up to in your life that you started experimenting with that? Um, I mean, going back to my mother, it's always been, even before I really started getting heavily into biohacking, I've always been one to try and avoid doctors as much as possible. Not because I think the medical industry is completely screwed up, which I do to many extents, but I just don't want to have to see the inside of a doctor's office or a hospital at all. I want to live as healthy as possible. Whether how, However long that i lucky enough to keep this physical form of me on this planet, I just want this physical form that my soul inhabits to be as healthy as it possibly can. I, I have a, a fear of degrading. You know, if I die tomorrow, I die. Fair enough. But I don't want any part of my life to be this physical form that I inhabit, not being able to do the things that it wants to do. So I've always had a drive that's been instilled from my mother to want to stay out of hospital and use as natural products and remedies as possible. If I'm not having to take pharmaceutical medication, then it's a good day for me. I guess when I started getting into the biohacking side more heavily was after I sort of found my initial success about 12 years ago. So when I was 20, 22, I started working on a company that became a company called Usocial, which effectively became one of the first social media or digital marketing agencies in the world. I started, I was working with initially within the first six months, huge companies like DARPA, which is the American military research organization, Volkswagen Asia Pacific. ING Bank, the tourist tourism boards of a bunch of countries, including Singapore, South Korea, the United States. I mean, clients that, that at 23 years old that I never thought I would have a hand in working in, but it was just basically because I founded yeah, what became one of the first social media or digital marketing agencies in the world. Now, we succeeded quite quickly as you do when you're starting to do something that no one else is really doing. We did a million dollars in revenue in the first nine months. And I think whenever they say money doesn't make you happy, and I, I definitely agree that money will not make you happy. But achieving a certain level of success stops you thinking about the things that most people struggle with on a day-to-day -day basis, which most people, if they're thinking about feeding themselves and clothing themselves and having a roof over their head, they're not really thinking about other major factors apart from, from that. And once that's taken away, once you achieve a certain level of success, and for most people, apparently it's about 80,000 US dollars a year, you start to not increase your happiness levels anymore, but you start to, money doesn't become an issue anymore. And so 
at that point in my life at 23, money wasn't an issue anymore. So you start, I find that people, when they achieve a certain level of success, they start to think more consciously about the things that really matter, their health, their wellness, their family, uh, you know, all these kinds of things. And I guess that was the point where I really started looking at, you know, this vessel of mine that I'm inhabiting, this meat suit that I get to live in is not just this thing that's a second thought anymore. This is something that I really, really need to be taking like a super amount of care of. So that's when I started focusing a lot more on what I ate, a lot more on what I was putting in my body and a lot more on what I was doing to myself. Initially at the time, one of the big things that was probably having huge effect on my biology that I didn't realize until maybe five years ago was the amount that I was traveling. From the age of 23, I was sometimes away from home for six months of the year, being flown all around the world by you know multi-billion dollar companies to consult with them. But that amount of travel that I was doing, it's something that I'm really trying to get a handle on as well now. Not necessarily traveling less, but I do travel less when I can just because, I mean, last, last year I was, I think I was on planes nine out of 12 months of the year. It's something that really negatively affects our biology that a lot of people don't realize. But I guess, yeah, to to answer your question short and sweet, it was, you know, I found success about 10, 12 years ago. And that's when I, when my biology and my body became really, really huge priority. Now, after, after you social, so I sold the company in 2012, it was sold to some guys. I mean, they're not super well known, but if someone Googled their names, I'm not going to mention them. Some stuff would come up, they had some big, big dreams of what they were going to do with the company. And then a year later, the domain was completely offline. So I they basically, yeah, I sold the company and then nothing ever, ever became of it. After that, I took a whole bunch of time off. I took, I think, nine months off to, to you know, find myself and just basically traveled the world. And and that was the point where I, I went into a bit of a slump. Admittedly, I traveled the world. And for the first time, I guess, since I started my company, I both had money as well as I had time, which is something that I didn't have before. Because when I was running Social, I was working, you know, 16 hour days, most days. Right. And so I took nine months off and basically did nothing, but I had quite a bit of money behind me. And I was just being basically a dick to myself, traveling the world, getting shit faced drunk all the time, putting way more drugs than I'd like to admit in my body. And yeah, basically ignoring everything that I'd turned into positives in my life in terms of, you know, building a a really intensely intense meditation practice, which is something I've been doing for close to 14 years now taking care of my body and mind, it kind of all went out the window for nine months while I tried to figure out what the hell I wanted to do with my life. But I don't regret it. It taught me a lot of things. But I think sometimes people just need to step away from normal routine. And I guess this was my way of stepping away um, to just let loose to find out what really matters in life. And, you know, I learned a lot about myself during that time. I wouldn't go back into it again. But what that basically led me into is that I hated the corporate consulting world that I was in, even though I was lucky enough to work with some of the biggest companies in the world and I was getting paid stupid amounts of money to do it and getting flown all around the world. I absolutely despised the corporate world. I I hated what I was doing, not because I wasn't seeing the benefits of it. It's because none of what I was directing my energy at, like these, these huge companies, really mattered to me. And it was, they were just really companies that were there to make a profit. You know, they're all companies with massive shareholders and, and, you know, with aims to make as much money as they can. And right. it's not something that, you know, I understand that everyone has to do their own thing and do what finds them joy. And, you know, I'm sure there are CEOs and, and, and executives of companies like some of the ones that I mentioned that are so totally stoked with what they're doing. And like, you know, this is whether it's, you know, 
social programming or whatever that's told them they need to be in a suit and in a boardroom and making, you know, a million dollars a year plus bonuses as an executive of a multinational company. But for me, when I saw the inside of that world, it was so far away from what I wanted to to do or be. So I realized after this nine months abroad, and it came from a very simple conversation with my father, Kim, he, I can't remember where I was. I was in Southeast Asia somewhere. I, it could have been Thailand. It could have been Vietnam. It could have been Malaysia where I lived for a year and a half. I don't know. But I was on the phone with him and it was about nine months into this, me just traveling the world and, and, and punishing my body basically. And he just said, he said, why don't you just do what you're good at and apply it to an industry that you love? And it was the simplest thing, but hmm. I was like, why the fuck did I not think about that in the last nine months? So I started thinking about what I love. And I mean, the, the entertainment industry, mu- music and movies is something that's been a passion since I was a kid. So I just, all I did is I diverted what I was great at and started focusing on the movie and music business. So from there, I started consulting with companies like Warner Music, EMI Music, Virgin Records and Paramount Pictures, some of the biggest movie and music studios in the world. And I just switched over to an industry that I loved, which then became me working in the festival industry. So for the last five and a half years, I've been working on 30 to 40 festivals around the world from small little events of a thousand people all the way to up to some of the biggest events in the world, like Tomorrowland. Mm-hmm. So it's, I just literally focused what I was great at, which was digital marketing and being able to do some of the things that, that I could do extremely well and focusing on, on an industry that I loved. And then now to get back into where I am today, I, after five and a half years, I realized that the festival industry enough was enough. I decided that I was going to take initially about a year off from the industry, a bit of a sabbatical, but I realized that it just wasn't for me at all anymore in the last six months. And that was just because even though I love the industry and, you know, again, going back to it, I was getting paid to travel the world and flown to countries like Guatemala and Morocco and Belgium and, and Hong Kong to work on some of the biggest festivals in the world. But which is, you know, amazing. And, you know, standing on a stage while there's 50,000 people in front of you having the time of their life and go, knowing that I had some part in that is one of the greatest feelings that I've ever felt in my entire life. There's, there's nothing that compares to that, whether it's a, a festival of 5,000 people or something like Tomorrowland, being able to stand on the side of a stage and look at, look at a, a sea of people having a blast and knowing that you had some part in that is, is one of the greatest greatest experiences of my life. And I will actually track back to one of the greatest experiences of my life in a moment that resulted in the festival industry as well. But going back to why I wanted out, it's just, I realized that with my passion for health is that the industry wasn't really serving me anymore. I had clients on just about every time zone around the world. So I had to make sure that I was available, not 24 hours a day, but almost. The hours in the weeks leading up to an event meant very little sleep, sometimes no sleep for days on end. The really heavy use of drugs and alcohol in the festival industry was also something that I didn't want to be around anymore. And it was just, despite the fact that I've always been proud for the last more than a decade that I've never worked for, for anyone that I've, I've worked for myself and had my own company, I came to a very simple but profound realization that having 30 or 40 clients around the world, sure, I had my own company and they were my clients, but they were really no different from having a boss. You know, I was always on their time and I always needed to do things when they needed them done. And that was something that I didn't want for myself anymore. So yeah, it was, it was a very easy transition and deciding that it was my partner, Sorrel, who's I hate the word, but she's an influencer. You know, she has a, a following of almost 700,000 on, on YouTube and 400,000 on, on Instagram. And, you know, she's for a couple of years, she's made a full-time living traveling the world as, you know, someone who has a following. 
you know, she said, why don't you start getting this information that you know about health and biohacking out into the world? So a podcast just made sense. And that's what here for the last month I've been recording episodes nonstop. As far as I'm aware, I'll be basically the first daily biohacking show in the world. We're going to do Monday to Friday episodes for about 30 minutes each. Daily. Wow. Yeah. So uh, I've been interviewing people like crazy. I've been lucky enough with some connections that I've had in the past to have some really incredible guests from the get-go. I mean, I have, you know, one of the most famous geneticists in the world. I've had people that have been on Oprah and Tim Ferriss's podcasts. I have basically leaders in the field. Um, And so, yeah, I'm very excited to get this stuff out to the world. Hopefully next week, the first five episodes will drop. So yeah, but you know, I don't want to sound like I'm disillusioned with the things that I've done in the past. I believe that absolutely everything happens for a reason. And even though the festival industry is something that I never, you know, I have some of the greatest friends that I've ever met, you know, in in so many varied countries around the world that, you know, I get to go and see and hang out with at festivals. But now I can go to events and festivals and party, whereas before it was a job. And I never really fully enjoyed myself because I was always thinking about, okay, what, what do I have to do next at this event? So it's going to be great to get out of the industry from that point of view and actually go and enjoy myself at festivals, which is, I mean, the reason that I got in the industry is because I love going to events and parties. And now I get to go to them again without having to think about it. Right. Just one final thing that I'd like to say that as a result of getting into the festival industry, one of the greatest moments of my life. So since I was about 14 years old, one of my favorite bands on earth have been Deftones. And I was lucky enough to bring them to Iceland for a festival in 2015. And I had the idea of doing a small side party for only 25 people where the lead singer of Deftones, Chino Moreno, would play the first concert in the world inside a volcano. Wow. When I say inside a volcano, I mean literally in the former magma chamber underground, twice the height of the Statue of Liberty underground in a magma chamber for, for 25 people. So we did that. I ended up getting stuck on the top of the volcano. Chino was supposed to play his show with Deftones at the main event later that day. The wind was so strong that the helicopters that dropped us off at the top of the volcano couldn't come back and pick us up. So after a bunch of phone calls and some pleading later, the Icelandic Coast Guard, whose helicopters could fly in hardcore wind, agreed to come and pick us up as long as we made a donation to them to donate to someone else. And basically, I ended up being rescued from the top of a volcano in Iceland during some of the most extreme wind I've ever experienced in Icelandic Coast Guard military helicopter and, you know, shit like that. It's I look back on it, regardless of how much stress the industry caused me over, over a while. I mean, there's certain things that I would just never give up. So wait, did the concert happen? Yeah, the concert happened. We got there about three or four hours before it was due to due to go. Yeah, it was a uh, yeah, crazy experience being in in helicopter, being basically rescued yeah, with one of my musical legends, one of my That's idols. That's crazy cool. Okay, there's a bunch of missing pieces of the puzzle that I definitely want to get to. But before we do that, here's my question to you. With you starting the podcast and putting so much energy into it and making it daily, what will be a moment that you think would make you feel as alive and excited as this moment with Deftones and a Volcano did, but in the world of podcast and sharing the health information that you love sharing? That's a damn good question. I guess, you know, I've thought about certain things that are probably likely going to be in my future when it comes to this podcast. You know, I'm a marketer by trade and I'm very good at selling myself and making sure that everything I do succeeds. So there's no doubt in my mind that my podcast is going to succeed. I'm also a big believer in doing doing things that everyone in the industry isn't doing. And just by the fact of, you know, doing shorter episodes and doing Monday to Friday daily stuff, you know, it's going to get noticed. But 
I mean, because of that, you know, there are probably going to be things in my future, like speaking engagements and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, yeah, they're, they're going to be rad, you know, things like that, you know, speaking on stage, which I've done before. And, you know, those things are going to be cool. But I guess the thing that would would equal being rescued from the top of a volcano <laughs> with Chino would be something like it would be something like having, you know, another idol of mine or someone who I respect getting in touch with me about consulting them about their health or biohacking, you know, something like that would probably be just on an equal footing. In saying that, there's probably, you know, there's there's a whole bunch of, you know, crazy new technologies and modalities of health and tracking and, you know, insane therapies that on the horizon, things that I really want to be a part of and bring into my life. And the fact that I'm going to have easier access to those yeah. as well is going to be a big deal for me because, yeah, just as part and parcel of doing stuff like that and, and becoming a figurehead in any industry, you tend to have easier access to products and services and things within your industry. So that's that's going to be a benefit. But right. yeah, I think I think if one day that I have someone that I really super respect coming to me for advice is going to, yeah, probably be close to being rescued from a volcano by a the Icelandic Coast Guard. Let's make it specific so that like a year from now or a month from now, we can go back and be like, okay, this is where we manifested it. So let's name a specific person. Well, in terms of specific people, not necessarily that I would want to work with because I, I don't want to put that out in the universe. The reason being is because I don't want to, I don't want to put out into the universe that someone that I respect needs help with their health. So to me, I, I believe that words and thoughts right. and feelings have insane amounts of power. And I don't want to, I like to think that everyone that I respect and I, I want them all to be healthy and, and happy. I mean, it's not always a, a reality. You know, uh, one of the most amazing people that I've spoken to so far is Kyle Maynard, who's a quadruple amputee. And he was the first person to summit Kilimanjaro without any prosthetics. And Kyle said something at the, the end of our interview. And he said, he said, everyone has a disability. So to think that everyone's happy and healthy is wrong. You know, there's something wrong with all of us, but I just don't want to put out into the universe that anyone has anything specific that they need to come to me for. I would say the people that I want to, that my number one to interview would be Russell Brand mm. by a long shot, not because of what he talks about in re regards to his health or his physical biology, but he has a brain that is very set up to learn more about human happiness and what's going on with society. Russell Brand would probably be my number one. Number two and three, I'd say, would probably be Tony Robbins and Tim Ferriss as a long shot. But probably alongside Russell Brand, if I had to say an equal number one, would be Aubrey de Grey, who is a leader. He's a, a doctor and a leader in the field of human longevity. And Aubrey quoted, he said that the first person to live to be a thousand years old has likely already been born, which is... Wow a crazy, crazy thing to think about. And he basically what he was meaning is that with the way that research is going into human longevity, so we, we, we think that right now, the maximum for a human being to live is about 125 years old. So when you look into our biology and our telomeres and the way that our biology ages, it's it's almost been mathematical, mathematically proven through the way that our telomeres shorten and a bunch of other biomarkers and factors that the human body cannot survive longer than 125 years. However, that is going to change in our lifetime dramatically. And Aubrey de Grey believes that the first person to live to be a thousand years old has already been born, is someone that's alive today. And he also believes that, that as long as you're under around 40 years old and you're alive now, you have quite a good chance of living forever. 
as long as you're taking care of your body. And I mean, that when I first heard that and thought about the repercussions and the impacts on humanity to that, it was blew my mind. I mean, it gave me goosebumps and it still kind of is to a certain extent. So I'd say Russell Brand and Aubrey de Grey would be my equal number ones. And then Tim Ferriss and Tony Robbins after that. All right. Noted. So fascinated by this concept as well. I hear about it a lot on the Bulletproof podcast. And I think there's so many other topics that this couldn't go into that can be another episode. You know, it's like if you are living 2000 years, there's a whole new level of meaning that you need to be finding in your life. And also, does that mean that it creates that it actually takes away the sense of urgency to be and do the best you can be right now? There's just so much to it. Anyway, not to get into this now, the pieces that I really wanted to get solved, Leon, is you mentioned that you started a social media agency within nine months. It was making a million dollars. You started working in a festival industry and you were sounded like right away working with some of the biggest festivals in the world. How does that happen? How did you get into social media in the first place? And what do you think is it about your work ethic, your vision, or what is it that gets you from zero to to the top so quickly? I would say if I could simplify it, it's working smarter, not harder, and also being able to sell yourself. So I have a big problem with, there are a lot of, I guess, people would call them thought leaders or entrepreneurs or people that have quite a large following that a lot of people look up to. And I think not to shit on what he does, but Gary Vaynerchuk is probably a perfect example of what I don't agree with. Now, Gary V's philosophy is to just grind, to keep working, to work, 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 work. And I have a big problem with that to a certain extent because there are, there's a generation that's looking up to him that is seeing that to make it in this world to succeed, you just need to work. And what I believe that's doing is I believe that's going to give an entire generation the philosophy that you need to give up everything your health, your social connections, your family, you need to make everything secondary to work, to to the grind, as Gary Vee always says, you know, you just got to grind, you've got to hustle. And I think that's wrong. I think that thinking that you just need to grind and put in stupid hours. And I've been there before. I've When I founded Social, I, I was working 16-hour days almost every day and it, it fucking drove me insane. And everything everything suffered because of it. And it's not something I'd recommend to everyone. But I've also succeeded by working smarter, by knowing what are the key points that clients want to hear, knowing the things that you need, that knowing, knowing where you have value, being able to simplify how you have value and being able to communicate that to a potential client is everything. And in com- combination with that later on down the track, it's not something that everyone's going to have at the start, but having connections and maintaining those connections and nurturing your pool of people that you know is an extremely valuable asset. So, I mean, at the start, when I founded you Social, and to give you a little bit more of a background, I mean, I grew up on 200 acre property in the middle of nowhere, about an hour and a half from Byron Bay in Australia with solar power, with solar hot water, with no connections to the mains grid, with no internet, with water tanks. Like I was not supposed to succeed in the tech industry. I I grew up being a kid in the dirt, not being fed antibiotics by my mom and with no internet connection. I didn't have a phone until I was 17 or 18 when I joined the army, when I moved away from home. And I didn't have an internet connection. I didn't access the internet for the first time until I was 16. So for me to go from being 16, being on the internet for the first time, 
to seven years later having a tech company that or a digital marketing agency that in its first nine months did a million US dollars in in sales. I mean, it shouldn't have happened. But how I got into it is it was I had a desire to be free. And freedom to me meant so when my when I was about three years old, and yeah, I'll get into some personal stuff, I experienced basically the worst the, the first memory that I ever have in my entire life is of my mother sitting at the kitchen table crying after my biological father had beaten her, which was quite a regular thing. And after that, she was she's a strong-ass Austrian woman and she kicked him out. And for a few years, we were alone. It was just my brother, Jeremy, and I and my mother. She was a single mom with basically nothing and we struggled. And I mean, when I say struggled, I mean, we struggled hard. We were poor as fuck. And until my mom met my stepdad, Kim, who and I've referred to him as my father a bunch of times, because as far as I'm concerned, he is, we were okay. But before that, like I, I knew what struggling was and my desire to become successful came from that feeling of struggle being so ingrained into me when I was a kid that I never wanted to live through that ever again. And I didn't necessarily want to make a million dollars is I just wanted to know that when I put my card in an ATM that I could put in a number, whether it's 200 or $500 or $1,000. And I knew that money was going to come out. And I wanted to be able to go, if I wanted to get up in the morning tomorrow and go, okay, I want to get on a plane and go see some part of the world I haven't seen before. I wanted to know that I could do that. I, I never wanted to feel like I didn't have anything. I never wanted to own a Lamborghini or anything, but I just wanted to know that I had freedom. And financial freedom to me is is a huge thing. So my desire to start an internet company wasn't really a desire to start an internet company. It was a desire to be completely free. And I saw the internet as the ultimate tool for freedom. And the fact that I could work from anywhere in the world and money would still keep coming in. I mean, to me, that was this, there's nothing else in this world that defines freedom of employment and finances more than that. And especially when, you know, you'd go to sleep and you'd wake up and, you know, you'd be made money when you were asleep. So my desire to start Social was, was basically because of that. I had no idea that I was going to be good at selling things. I had no idea that I was going to be great at marketing. But when I was in school, I was an amazing creative writer. Despite the fact that I hated school and I had the worst report cards, my report cards were always, Leon doesn't pay attention. Leon is disruptive in class. Leon's the class clown. I was lucky enough that when I was in school, I had an almost photographic memory. So when it came to actually doing tests, I would beat my entire grade in everything. Maths, physics, creative writing, I would beat my entire year in everything. And I'm, I'm not saying that use me as an example, but I was lucky because even though I was being a shithead and doing nothing in school apart from trying to get girls' attention by being the class clown and making them laugh, I was still doing exams and kicking absolute ass at them. And I guess one thing that came from that is is my creative writing skills really helped me when I went into marketing because being able to write, being able to tell stories and being able to sell yourself helps massively. So when I came to deciding that I wanted to do something on the internet, I had no idea what, you know, I tried things that were really popular at the time, like affiliate marketing and all those kind of things. And it was just way too much work for, for, to see any benefits. So what I started to do is I started looking in, in at methods of traffic generation that would bring results quicker. And this is, this is like around the time that Facebook and Twitter were starting to get popular. And, and I thought, man, these social media tools could be an amazing source of leverage. I mean, it's basically free traffic if you can get something going viral or, or whatever. So I figured out at the time, it was quite easy to game the system on just about any social media site, whether it was StumbleUpon or Reddit or Facebook or Twitter. It was You, you only needed a tiny following to get something to go viral. It was, it was so super easy. 
So with my creative writing skills and with my ability to devour a book in about two or three hours, I learned everything I could and I really figured out how to make things go viral and how to get people talking about your company on social media. And I, I thought, I initially thought this was going to be something I was going to refer to affiliate marketing or selling my own product. And I, I thought, I thought, man, companies would pay a shitload of money for this. And so what I basically figured out, I thought, I thought, well, you know, effectively all I was doing at the time, if I couldn't make something go viral, I would approach a company, let's say in the performance automotive world, you know, a company that sold, you know, performance exhausts or whatever for cars. And they were all wanting to get more exposure for their products. So what I would do is I'd approach someone that had a Facebook page of performance cars. And I'd say, how much will it cost for you to post something about this company? And they'd say, 800 bucks. I'd say, okay, cool. I'd go back to the other company. I'd say, it's going to be $1,500 for this post. So all I was doing was arbitrage, basically. I was just the middleman. But I figured out that I thought, okay, cool. The concept works. I'm making a little bit of money from this. But how am I going to get my company or myself to get exposure? You know, I want this to be something huge. So I thought, you know, I'm great at writing. And what what's the ultimate form of writing and storytelling when it comes to marketing? And that's PR. So I thought, I'm going to go get some PR for my brand new company. And I, I've always been great at telling stories. So, But I knew that the story of me going being a middleman and selling other companies' space on other companies' Facebook pages was not a story. I mean, it's boring as hell. I mean, I even say it now and I feel like I'm going to go to sleep. But what is a story? So I came up with a few concepts and I thought, well, effectively, in the end, this company is just so many of these companies wanted an increased presence on Facebook or Twitter. They wanted more followers to their own presence and they were getting it as a result of people with other pages talking about their product. So I thought if I said to someone, you know, you can now literally buy Facebook fans or Twitter followers, like that's a story. So I wrote it up. I wrote this David and Goliath story of this, you know, 23-year-old Australian kid in his bedroom facing off against companies like Facebook. And I sent it, published it, I sent it to a few newspapers and things like that, and I went to sleep. I woke up in the morning with a story written on the Associated Press, the LA, LA Times, it, basically everyone. And the reason that the story worked is because it was controversial. One, no one had any idea about when they bought, when they were, for, for want of a better term, buying Twitter followers, what was happening. They thought, they legitimately thought that we were somehow harvesting user data and, and selling it or delivering fake you know, people to people's accounts. We weren't. We were literally a middleman selling space on people's Facebook or Twitter profiles to other companies. But because there was so much controversy and people had no idea what was exactly happening, it was this huge story. I mean, I had people pissed off writing me saying, don't you dare ever sell me to some company. I mean, that's not what was happening. But the philosophy, the mentality behind the story worked. And that's what resulted PR from there was was like, yeah, over the next nine months was one of the things that really cemented us into yeah, making a, a ton of money. And what I recommend to everyone is, is that there is always a story behind your business. So for example, I became obsessed with the idea of generating PR that it, it became basically the focus of our strategy for the first year that we were in business. And the publicity stunt, which is, I think, something that is dying a really good publicity stunt is something that uh, publicity stunts are always free for the most part. I think a good publicity stunt should always be free. So what I was doing is I was coming up with ideas of how to get more publicity for you social without spending any money apart from submitting a press release. So I had the idea, this is before that advertising on Facebook or Twitter was even a thing, before Twitter ads or Facebook ads were even a thing. And Facebook was just talking about implementing ads and Twitter hadn't yet. And I knew that Twitter was going too soon. So what I did is I sent an email to Twitter and this is 
this gives you an idea of how simple a publicity stunt can be. I sent an email to Twitter offering them $200,000 to be the first company to advertise on Twitter. And they said, they flat out said no. Well, I mean, they didn't flat out say no. They didn't even respond. But what I did then is I wrote a press release that said, usocial.net offers Twitter $200,000 for first advertising space. Now that's a fucking story. And the media, again, ate that up. And that made us even more money. So the thing is, is that you don't necessarily have to even do anything to be able to leverage another brand's name. And I'm saying there's always a you know, I was sitting on the razor edge. I'm not saying that we were doing anything wrong, but I was also trying to be controversial because controversy sells. I'm not saying use another brand. Don't be detrimental. Don't be a shithead, basically, like I was being when I was 23 years old. You know, I was not necessarily always doing the right thing, but using those examples, you should be able to get an idea of of how easy it is to generate press. Now, I'll give you another example of, of how far you can push the envelope, but not necessarily do the right thing. And this is something I would never, ever do now, but it can show you the kind of things that you can do in terms of generating press. So when I was consulting with with a whole bunch of big companies in the early phases of Social, I decided to see if we could focus our attention on some local marketing and see if we could do what we're doing on a global scale and focus it to local companies. So what I wanted to see if I could work with local businesses in Brisbane and Australia where I was, where I was living at the time. But seeing if I could get high ticket clients for you social that that are potentially in the local area and see if we could, for benefit of our, our own clients in the future, direct more local marketing than on a global scale and make it a success. So I thought I targeted companies that sold high ticket items that have very high turnover that could afford you socials rates at the time. And what I came up with is is going after car dealerships, especially branded car dealerships, like, you know, the luxury brands and stuff like that, who always have a lot of money to spend. So the thing that I, I found when I was looking into it is that their, their advertising was always boring as hell, especially when you're looking at luxury German cars. It's always quite boring. It's always, you know, marketing to people in gray suits that, you know, that aren't necessarily, you know, they, they have to be quite bland with their marketing to a certain extent. It's changing a little bit with performance arms of these, these car companies. But so I came up with the idea that I thought all of their marketing is heartless. So me, again, being the young shithead that I was willing to do just about anything, I went and bought 25 pig hearts, like actual real pig hearts from a butcher. I put them in plastic containers. We airlocked them. We put them in uh, in dry ice so they'd stay cold. And I sent them with a letter to 25 car dealerships around Brisbane with a letterhead saying, your marketing is heartless with an actual pig heart in a container. Now, we got a varied set of responses from threats saying that you scared the shit out of our receptionist and we're going to sue you to three car dealerships saying that's the most brilliant thing we've ever seen. We want to work with you. So we got nothing ever came out of it. And this is why I'm saying, you know, youth is a wonderful thing and we'll, we'll make you do things that you, you realize in older age. Me, I'm not that much older. I'm 34 now, but it, it will make you realize that maybe it wasn't the smartest thing at the time, but it taught me a lot. So, you know, we, we did get three very high paying clients out of it and we also got legal threats. But what I'm trying to get across to your listeners is whether what I did was right or wrong, you should look at it as a lesson in all you need is a little bit of creativity and ingenuity. And it's not really that hard to sell yourself. You might piss some people off at times. And I have a philosophy that, you know, 
like people say that you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. You're going to go through life. If you go through life thinking, trying to do everything so you're never ever going to annoy someone or potentially offend someone with what you're doing if you're trying to break the mold a bit, I think that's wrong. I think it's really wrong because it doesn't matter how much you tiptoe around life, you're going to annoy someone at some point. I'm not necessarily saying send pig hearts to car dealerships in the mail. But do something different, man. Don't do what everyone else is doing and expect it to work. Don't, I don't know, just don't don't read a book on marketing and then follow everything in it to the letter. Take everything as as examples or take everything as, you know, footnotes or, or ideas or as part of a whole, a, a, an entire philosophy, but inject some of yourself in what you're doing. Um, learn how to sell yourself, learn how to do things that are different and learn how to do things that will make you stand out. And that's that's probably the biggest recipe for success that I could possibly give you. Oh my gosh, your stories are just so good. You addressed everything that I wanted listeners to know. Can we, I have a couple more burning questions to wrap up. Yeah, of course, go for it. Okay, so here's my question. With your incredible stories, this was still, you know, I get the idea of -of out-of-the-box thinking that applies anytime, but I'm curious specifically with current social media landscape. I have the same relationship with the world, with the word influencer as you do, but at the same time, you know, this is my job, this is my livelihood, this is my business. So I've just learned different using different language to speak about it that feels more empowering. But the truth is, for anyone in this day and age, having a personal brand does give you that freedom and does give you the possibility to create any kind of life you want. So what I'm curious is, from your perspective, what is the way right now, if there is one way or one way of thinking that can really help people build those powerful brands that stand out that are not like everyone else out there. I mean, I think the simplest thing is just going back to what I was just saying is is be yourself and stand out. Do things that if everyone and partner Sorel is a perfect example of this. If everyone in your Instagram feed is posting travel photos of the same shit where there's a big landscape in the background and you're staring off into the distance acting like you're not even there, you know, front and center. If everyone's doing that shit, don't do that shit. You know, do something else. You know, Sorel, she made her name in the travel industry first, and she has almost never posted a sameness photo that almost everyone else does. Find out what it is that's special about you and share that with the world. Even if it's scary, I tend to find that the most unique things about people are usually the things that they're the most scared to share with the rest of the world. But that's, I think, where the gold lies. When people find that you're authentic, when people really find out who you are, that's when you can create a really profound connection with other people. If you're just trying to be that person, that faceless person that, you know, you're pretending that you're you're showing who you are on social media, but really you're not. Like you're just going to, it's going to feel like everyone else. And there are so many influencers out there now that you read their captions, you look at their photos, you look at the content you're producing, and you know it's a facade. You know it's just they're looking at what everyone else is doing, and it's you read the stuff that they're putting out, and it's like it almost sounds like a branded press release. It almost It's just like I know that that's what they want people to hear. It's not authentic. And even if you have a smaller audience than someone, even if like I would rather have 10,000 people following me that are so dedicated to me and what I do than a million that are only following me because of my pretty pictures. Like it's not the way forward. And I find that people are so scared these days. And I admit it's like, it's a human thing. We all have it. 
sometimes to share the most intimate, scary, I'm not saying we have to share about every part of our lives, but, but like show who you really are, show who you really are and don't be afraid to say something if that's what you actually believe, which is, I think, another big issue in the world these days. You know, I, I think this culture that the world has of offense, of everyone being offended by fucking everything is wrong. And there are so many people that are scared to say things because they're worried that they might lose a brand deal or or that, that someone is going to shit all over them in the comments because that's not the socially acceptable thing to think, even if it's what they actually think. And, and I, I, think, I think it's like to say that I think that's wrong is like the understatement of the century. And it's scary at first, but you'll find there are a lot more people that are speaking up and not saying things that are socially acceptable anymore because that's the thing that they're supposed to say. I don't know if that all makes sense, but like if you actually honestly believe something, even if it's not what 90% of the world believes, say that thing and you will find people that it resonates with. I'm not saying that necessarily if that thing is that the world is flat or whatever, you know, sure, if that's what you believe and that's what, you know, makes you happy, if you want to believe that the world is flat, sure, believe that the world is flat. You will find people that will agree with you and you'll have your own little community. But, but like, you know, find the things that you so passionately believe in that, that spark that fire inside you when you speak about them. And, it will make all the difference. If you're just speaking about things that you think the world is going to hear about, you always know when someone's like full of shit. You always know when someone's just saying the things that they want to hear. And it kind of comes across in their, in their passion for things. Find those things that really, really light you on fire and speak about those. You know, get those across to the world and it's going to come across in everything that you say and do and write and it, it'll sound authentic and people will really resonate with that. So good. And with that, looping back to bioalchemy, you talked about working smarter, not harder, and finding that unique and authentic voice within you. What are some practices, you know, you mentioned you do meditation that you personally do to connect to that inner guidance, intuition, higher wisdom, whatever you call it? Yeah, I mean, meditation has been a big one for about, yeah, I'd say 14 years of my life since I was started meditating when I was 20, I think. Um, meditation gives me clarity that almost nothing else does. And also being able to write down my thoughts. So for the last, uh, something I did in my early 20s, but I haven't really refound a love for until the last year or so is journaling every day. Just having a space or a, a piece of paper, whether it's in a book or whatever, just writing down your thoughts in the morning. We have so many things going on in our heads that we don't even realize are there until we put them down on paper. And whether it might not happen after a month, it might not happen after a year, but you'll find that when you get into a practice of just writing down what's in your head every day in the morning, it's one of the first things I do. I usually make make coffee in the morning and then I journal. And it's amazing the things that come out. And it, it's also an amazing tool to help you to get to know yourself more and really what's going on in your head. Apart from that, another practice that that if I don't do every day makes me feel like I'm running at 75% is, is grounding or earthing. And simply what that is, is it's getting your skin, your body in contact with the planet. And I know that might sound hippie-ish, wishy-washy, bullshit, whatever. But hey, I'm on an earth mat right now. Great. So yeah, I don't, I don't need to convince you. But so we are so disconnected with our planet these days. I mean, and the average person, there are most people go through most days if they live in a big city where they don't touch the earth at all. They're wearing shoes. Their feet are only on concrete or carpet or tiles when they're in the house. Like most people do not, do not contact the planet anymore whatsoever. Now, from a scientific point of view, I usually like to back everything up with science, but 
grounding or earthing is a big divide in the biohacking and scientific community, especially in terms of the research that's out there. Some of the research says that, yes, there's validation to this. Some of the research says that, no, there isn't. And if there is research that says, yes, there's validation to grounding or earthing, they're not really sure why it's working. I mean, there are some theories, but we don't really, really know why. You know, you can measure to a certain extent small electrical charges, but there's not enough data about there about it out there. Having said that, there is nothing that makes me feel better. And even on days that I don't meditate, if I go and sit in a park and take my shoes off and lay on the ground and like actually touch the planet for 15 to 20 minutes, I, I don't need to meditate. If I meditate but don't ground, I can tell. If I don't do both, I'll feel especially crap. But grounding, it's, it's so, 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 so important. So I recommend if, and everyone has a park around them somewhere, try and get 15 minutes, half an hour would be best of contact with the earth every day. Just take your shoes off and sit in a park and don't stare at your phone while you're doing it. Just sit in the park and be with your own thoughts for half an hour. You don't have to meditate. Just sit there and just think or just enjoy being in nature while you're touching the earth. Take your shoes off. May not always be easy depending on where in the world you live. I know it's not necessarily easy for me in Iceland in winter, but there's always ways around it. So in Iceland in winter, I can go sit in a hot spring in nature. You know, that's that's just as good. When I'm in Australia, I actually had Quantified Bob, who I, I, I mentioned at the start of this podcast. Uh, he actually said, which is something I didn't know, that actually the best way to ground yourself is getting in the ocean. Getting in salt water is literally the best way to ground yourself, bar none. So if you can do that, which is something that I can do while I'm in Sydney here in Australia quite easily, again, not as easy for me to do when I'm in Iceland because the water's damn cold all the time. But that, some people I found just can't meditate. Some people are just not built for it. I know people that have tried for years and they still can't and they say it doesn't work and whatever. But if you can't meditate, go and ground yourself, sit in nature. I mean, hug a tree if you have to. Just go and take your shoes off and lay in the grass and it will have an incredible impact on your life. So good. So good. Okay, last but not least, given your background and your your way of thinking, you mentioning your partner Sorel's success, what role have you played in that, if any? I mean, I've I've just been there to support her along along the way. You know, of course, doing what I've I've done with social media. You know, I've I've given her advice from time to time. But I mean, her growth is her own. She's, I'm very proud of what she's achieved. And she is. When I look at the fundamentals of how to do social media right, Sorel is a, an amazing example of that. She speaks her mind. She doesn't do what everyone else is doing. She is extremely authentic. Sometimes to her detriment. I mean, she's had times where people have flamed her in comments because she said things that she honestly believes that weren't necessarily socially acceptable. She just, I don't know, she has a legitimate desire to really connect with other human beings beyond seeing those other human beings as a way to make money because of a social media following. And of course, it makes Sorel a full-time living. Like she is a full-time, and again, I hate the word influencer, whatever influencer means, but it's, you know, it's what she does for a job. So I'm not saying she doesn't appreciate the fact that she gets to be herself uh, and make money out of being herself and doing the things that she loves to do. But she is one of the most authentic, genuine human beings that I've ever met in my life. And she tries to get that over wherever possible with the people that she's privileged enough that enjoy what she says enough to press that follow button and do what she does. So yeah, I mean, I'm not just saying it because I'm a doting boyfriend and I love her so much, which which I do, of course. But, you know, follow Sorel. She's Sorel Amour on all channels to see a really good example of, of 
you know, especially her Instagram, when you compare it to other Instagrammers is so unique, you know, it's where everyone's being bright and oversaturated. A lot of her photos are quite darker, things like that. But it's, you know, it's her own style. It makes her stand out. It makes her not be like everyone else. And yeah, that's, yeah, it's a big thing. But as far as, you know, how, how much I, I related to her success, I mean, being there as her partner while she went through hard times and while she, you know, when she was struggling at the start, when she, you know, it was literally her full-time job and she wasn't making money and just being able to support, support her emotionally, you know, that's, I would say, and I think she'd probably agree that that's the biggest role that I've played, just loving her and being there for her when she needed me. That's so sweet. I totally agree, guys. If you don't follow Sorel Amora yet, definitely find her. It's funny. I just came back from volunteering in the Bahamas and I posted my first advanced selfie and just not even through tagging Sorel, just through using the hashtag, I was shocked how many messages I got from my people and and my friends saying, oh my gosh, Sorel is my favorite creator right now. Yeah. She's my favorite human in the world. (laughs) Apart from myself, I have to say, I've been, it's, I've been Mm. spending a lot of time, something that's really only come into my realization in the last 12 months or so, you know, I've always said over the years, you know, how much I've loved myself, but yeah, the last year I've had some pretty traumatic and challenging experiences emotionally. I would say the last year of my life spiritually and emotionally has been the most challenging of my entire life, but we never grow unless we're challenged. But yeah, the last year it's made me definitely realize that despite the fact for years I've said I love myself, I haven't really. So yeah, it's something that I've, I've, yeah, learn to love yourself, guys. It's hard. It's it's really hard. Being able to truly say that I love myself. I love not only this meat suit that I I live in on a day-to-day basis, but the the energetic signature that is my soul or whatever you want to call it. I mean, it's 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 we all have so much bullshit related to ourselves, whether it was something that someone told us when we we're in school or or some attention that certain people didn't give us or whatever. I mean, it's only when you really challenge yourself about it that you find out how little on some levels you may not love yourself, but that's a beautiful journey learning to love love who you are. Right. And such daily work. One of the reasons I started the thing I'm doing now is because I was brokenhearted. I was going through a really rough time in my life and I started posting pictures on Instagram in a beautiful ceramic red heart-shaped bowl of my breakfast and just sharing uplifting thoughts that were meant to get me out of the black hole of the heartbreak. And then a couple of years later, I read Tim Ferriss. And after about a hundred people asked me where they can buy my red heart bowl, I was like, oh, I can produce 2000 of them and sell them. So I ended up doing that. And now the heart bowl is one of my main products. And I thought I checked that box. I thought because I now sell the product, because my whole brand is built on the idea of starting your day with self-love, like I'm done. And just now I'm being honest with myself in the past few months or a year as well and just realizing how much more there is to do and, and it's daily. So yeah, I love that you brought that up too. Yeah, it, it's amazing to think and that, you know, the more that we get to know about ourselves on so many levels, the more that especially over the last year or two that I've looked at myself and had this internal conversation with, with myself and I've just gone, man, you're so full of shit. Like, you know, I say, I say these things that were or that I thought was so much of a part of my essence. And then the little voice in the back of my head that's now just observing, which which definitely came from my first experience with DMT last year. I've, I've realized that I'm so disconnected from my thoughts and my actions of who I am that I'm just really an observer. And most of what I think or do is just programming. But there have been so many occasions over the last year where I've just looked at myself and gone, man, 
you're so full of crap. You know, why are you doing that? It's, it's not you, you know, but it's, yeah, it's a, it's an amazing experience We're we're very strange, unique, complex, and wonderful individuals, us human beings. Mm. Have you seen Hamilton's pharmacopoeia on DMT? I have. Brilliant, right? Yeah, yeah. He's uh, Hamilton Morris is, is an amazing dude. Yeah, he definitely delves quite hard into a lot of things. I think he's an amazing, amazing resource. But man, some of the stuff that he's done, I don't think that I'm ready for yet. <laughs> I'll check back with you a year from now. Okay, yeah, we've maybe. covered so much. I know I'm keeping you later than we spoke about. Is there anything else that I didn't ask you about that you would like to share before we wrap? No, no, I, I think that's great. I mean, as, as many of your listeners as possible, I'd, I'd love to go to bioalchemy.co, which is, yeah, the website. I've just got a landing page up there right now. But yeah, within a week of this recording, this on February 1st, the first five episodes should be live. So yeah, if people want to check that out, do it. If not, I just, yeah, I hope everyone's taken some, some benefit out of what I've had to say. My long rambling, meandering words. So would you say the best way to connect with you is through the podcast once it launches? Yeah, through the podcast or I mean, find me on Instagram. I've, I've started a new account for this, for this benefit. It's just Leon the Alchemist. So I've only got six photos up there right now, but it's only the start of my journey. So yeah, okay. I'd love to connect with people there and, and the podcast and yeah, getting to know more people and hopefully helping them out with some mental and physical things that have had such a massive impact on my life through biohacking. Leon, thank you so much for your presence, for sharing all the stories. I'm so excited to follow this new chapter and maybe find out that you're one of the people to live 2,000 years because then you're just going to help even more people. Yeah, I'm not sure if I want to, but <laughs> we'll see how that goes. All right. Thank you so much. No worries. Thank you. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends, leave a review, and find all the show notes on wokeandwired.com and connect with me on Instagram at wokeandwired. Stay woke, stay wired, and have an incredible day.